Hi, Lisa. Welcome. Okay, so we are studying the book of Proverbs known as this blurring. Oh, there we go. Known as Michele. Uh, the, there we go. Malbim on Michele. So Malbim is the rabbi whose commentary we're using. Mishle means the book of Proverbs, and it is written by King Solomon some 3,000 years ago. So it's a very, 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 very old book, and it contains very, very, very timeless wisdom. So it's always exciting to look at something so ancient and see how contemporary and relevant it is, because as we always say, human nature doesn't change. Um, okay. Hello, Basia. Welcome. All right. And today we're starting chapter 17. So we are officially more than halfway done with the book, which I personally think is very exciting. The book has 31 chapters. Okay. Chapter seven. Uh, wait one second. No, we're not. We're done with 17. We're starting 18. My mistake. Okay. Chapter 18. We're on page 188 for those of you who have my version of the book. Hello, Avril. All right. Verse one. If a person detached seeks his own desire, he breaks out in all debility. Okay, so we're talking here about detachment. Now, this is a very interesting topic. I actually had somebody who's a yogi ask me once, does Judaism believe in detachment? Because detachment is a big concept in um I guess, far Eastern religions where you try to detach yourself from desire. Um, and that is that is a, an important value in those cultures. And I was like, I don't know. I don't really think of Judaism as being into detachment per se. Um, we're supposed to try to integrate. I think integration is a more accurate way to describe the Jewish approach. And you know, we've discussed this many times how Judaism wants us to figure out a way to um, use everything that the world has to offer in order to, you know, put it in the service of goodness. So hello, Naomi. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Good to be back. And Dana, welcome. So, yeah, it's good to have you back. So um so this is a very interesting verse. And, and actually, in the last chapter, we did one of the more well-known verses in this book, which is that you should know God in all your ways, right? That no matter what it is that you do or that you might do professionally or that you might be talented in or that you might have a hobby or no matter what circumstance you might find yourself in, you can know God in all of those ways, meaning that you can use everything that you have and everything that you are in the service of God and godliness and, and higher values. So, right. If somebody has a talent, they shouldn't just hide it away. They should bring it out and they should utilize it and they should put it in the service of goodness. So now here in this verse, we're talking about detachment, which I didn't know this verse when the woman asked me the question, or I might've had a better answer, but here if a person detached seeks his own desire, he breaks out in all debility. So it sounds like detachment is not a good thing. And, um, you know, I can't help but think about some of the ascetic models in other religions where people are counseled to not engage in certain earthly pleasures, whether it's materialism or sexuality, and that that will be the self or that will be the save to protect them from overindulgence. But what we've seen over and over again is that that often results in disaster because a human being does have a need to uh, indulge in certain desires, but Judaism wants us to use them appropriately and respectfully and with boundaries and with dignity, not to deny that we have those drives or those needs, right? You may have noticed that Judaism is not an anti-food movement. <laughs> no, <laughs> just the opposite. We have figured out how to bring food into literally everything. I personally find it hilarious how Yom Kippur breakfast has turned into its own holiday. That is so hilariously Jewish. 
Like we can't eat all day. So let's have another party where we eat. <laughs> it's almost like its own, you know, religious experience. It's so funny. Um, so we bring food into everything and we are into get married, have sex, have kids, enjoy your life, you know, build your wealth if you can use it well, you know, build beautiful synagogues. And so go see God's beautiful earth, you know, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Hirsch, who, is a rabbi from was a rabbi in the 1800s in Germany. And he, he wrote many, many commentaries on the Torah. One of the commentaries that he wrote was for the, the book ethics of the fathers, which is one of my favorites and what I'm writing my new book about. But he, at the end of his, he was a very simple rabbi. I mean, he was very, very educated. He, he was, you know, a German university educated rabbi. Um, but he was a very simple person, like personally in terms of how he lived and at the end of his life, he embarked on a trip to, to the Alps and it was pretty out of character. And his, you know, students, his congregants said, Rabbi, like, why the fancy vacation? You know, and he said, when I pass away, God is going to say to me, Shamshan Rafal, have you seen my beautiful Alps? And I'll say, no, God, I have not seen your beautiful Alps. And I'll be like, well, what? Why do you think I made them? I made them for you to enjoy. Right. So this is so Jewish that we're supposed to indulge, engage appreciate life, enjoy life appropriately, beautifully, within our budget, with respect toward others, with proper boundaries, with dignity, right? Everything has boundaries. Food has boundaries. Sex has boundaries. Indul uh, material indulgence has boundaries. But asceticism, to just swear it off, very not Jewish. Okay, so here is the commentary. Hello, Larissa. If a person has become detached from immoral cravings, for example, by old age or illness, and he seeks to re-arouse them, the result will be physical debility enfeeblement. Okay, now I personally have a hard time understanding that. That if a person gets old, right, and they, they, they don't have the same desires that they used to have, you know, like, I'm not old, I'm middle-aged, but I have already found that my relationship to food has changed from when I was younger. I used to find food so exciting. And now, I mean, don't get me wrong, I enjoy it, but it's like, okay, so I don't have dessert. Okay, so I so I missed a meal. Okay, it's like not that big of a deal. I feel like I feel like there's always been food and there always will be food. Like it's not, it doesn't have the same um magic, I guess. You know, when you're little and you taste a bite of something and you're like, everything is so new and so exciting. And and I think this is true of everything. You know, our our physical urges and desires tend to change as we get older. I actually find that I don't really enjoy sweet things so much anymore the way I used to. Um, so I don't know. It's it's just interesting. And so what this is saying, which I don't I, I don't really I, I understand the next explanation much better that if a person seeks to rearouse those things, he will find himself physically debilitated. Okay, that's what he says. I believe him. He's a very wise rabbi, but I don't really understand it so much. But the next part is what I really want to focus on. Alternatively, the text can mean that if someone removes himself from human contact, for example, by becoming a hermit in the desert, he will find lust raging only the more fiercely, breaking out in all its strength. That's the end of the verse, right? Breaking out it's, it's all in all its strength when opportunity occurs after long deprivation. So what that means is that if a person, and I mean, we can just use, you know, unfortunately, the, uh, you know, priest Catholic church debacle or disaster, or I don't even know what to call it, where you know, the priests felt that they were going to swear off getting married and sexual contact. And then the lust or desire doesn't go away. It just breaks out in unhealthy and dangerous and damaging ways. And the person has less of a, um, less of an ability to control it and contain it because they've been deprived for so long, right? This is what we call the, the forbidden fruit effect. That when you say that you can't have something, it makes you want to have it more, right? So this is so interesting. Um, I remember learning once, and I don't know the source for this, that for every food that God told us not to eat because it wasn't kosher, he created a food that tastes similar. So, I mean, this is fascinating. Hi, Debbie. Um, but the, like for, you know, 
pork, there's a substitute that tastes similar or for lobster, there's a substitute. I, I don't know. I, I grew up keeping kosher, so I couldn't tell you, but I have heard that meaning that God doesn't just want us to say, I can never have that for the rest of my life. And I can never experience that pleasure for the rest of my life. You can, it's going to be a little different, but you can, but just to say, I'll never do that again. Right. Like, you know, sometimes when a person starts to learn about the laws of speech and, you know, you're not supposed to gossip about other people and you're supposed to be careful about being really honest. And then, you know, sometimes we are like, OK, forget it. I'm never going to talk again. <laughs> There's nothing I, everywhere I turn. I'm going to get into trouble. No, Judaism doesn't want you to never talk again. Judaism wants you to talk. Judaism wants you to engage. Judaism wants you to be connected when you just swear something off. Right. People, then it makes you just want it more and more and more. And then like it all like bursts out of you. You know, it's like it's like if people swear off, you know, white sugar and white flour or, or these kinds of things. And I mean, listen, some people have medical conditions or situations or addictions, whatever. I'm not speaking about that. But what happens is that thing takes on if a person doesn't really have to do it, they're doing it for other reasons. That thing takes on this like magical quality in your head and you end up becoming obsessed with that thing that you can't have. So if you can't have sex, you become obsessed with sex. If you can't eat food, you become obsessed with food. That's what happens. That's what this verse is telling us. So it's telling us that Judaism doesn't want you to engage in deprivation. Judaism doesn't want you to become an ascetic. Judaism wants you to engage in the world, to engage in the pleasures of the world mindfully and responsibly. Okay, thoughts? or comments on verse one. Isn't it interesting how there's so many like juboos? Because like, I just find that, I don't know, just a comment. It's interesting to me that they don't know, like, it's like you can't handle living in the world or I don't know. I'm it's confusing because they remove themselves. I mean, that's right. Yeah. It's very fascinating to me, but it's not surprising because Jews in their core are spiritual seekers. And I think that a lot of Jews who are Jews did not encounter spirituality in their own in, in their own Judaism growing up. They probably didn't know that Judaism contains spirituality, you know, and maybe they didn't taste the passion of Hasidism or the love of Breslov or the um intellectual rigor of the Lithuanian academic yeshivas, right? So they find it in other faiths, which somehow seem more accessible or more interesting or exotic, honestly, because it's not Judaism. And then they find themselves connected to that. I I recorded a podcast once for Momentum um, about this topic. I'm going to, I'm going to share it with you guys about why Jews are attracted to these kinds of disciplines very interesting. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Did you ever read a Jew in the Lotus? No, no, I know it. It's a fascinating book. Did you read uh, letters from a Jewish? Letters to a Buddhist Jew. Yeah. Yeah, That's really, it's really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A Jew in the Lotus was fascinating. And actually I wrote a blog post about that book. So I'll share that with you too. Okay. Anything else? Any other thoughts? Okay. Okay, so let's continue with number two. A fool has no delight in understanding, but only in the disclosure of his heart. All right, so... If you recall, there's different words, different Hebrew words that are used for a person who rejects wisdom, right? One of them is a, a, a fool, what, what the author translates as a fool. And one of them is a skeptic, which we kind of retranslated as a cynic, right? There's a difference between a cynic and a fool. What is the difference? A cynic is actually very often intellectually motivated, meaning they want wisdom. They're just looking for it in other places and they're rejecting this kind of wisdom. They're rejecting Jewish wisdom because they sometimes it's because they want to justify a lifestyle. 
But sometimes it's really because of intellectual reasons and they really just arrived at the wrong conclusion. A fool is somebody who um, who really just wants to who wants to justify their lifestyle. They are not interested in wisdom, not because they're so intellectual or academic or even motivated by any of that. It's just because they really want to do what they want to do and they don't want to be bothered by the facts, right? You know, like sometimes my kids will say, I don't understand. Why can't I da 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 da? Hey, that's a trap, guys. If your kids ever say that, don't fall into that trap. They don't want to know why. Okay. <laughs> they are not being an intellectual academic where they're debating, you know, the merits or demerits of a particular philosophy. No, it's because they want to do it, you know? So like my kid will say, I don't understand. Why aren't we allowed to, you know, wear this and that in our uniform? And I'll be like, well, I think the reason is because the school wants, you know, and I'll give some perfectly rational, legitimate reason for why that might be the rule. And my kid's like, no, I don't understand. I don't care. That doesn't make any sense. Well, actually it makes a lot of sense, but what they're really saying is I don't want that to be true because I want to do what I want to do, right? Like that saying goes, my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts, right? So when we are um, dealing with people who kind of come at us with these protestations or arguments or defenses, we really have to try to figure out what is this person's main objective? Is it to understand? Is that what they really want? Do they want knowledge and wisdom and information or is it to justify that which they already want to do? And it's very important to know the answer to this question because it will determine whether it pays to engage with this person or not, okay? So, so let's look at the commentary and then we'll, we'll say more about this. The skeptic, for all his doubts and objections, seeks to gain understanding. The fool knows moral wisdom, but ignores it in favor of gratifying his cravings. So if you would say to this person, do you think that your behavior is wise? They would say no. <laughs> but I mean, if they were really being honest, which most people are not willing to do, but you're doing it anyway. Yes. Okay. So for example, I have a kid who believes that animals and people have the same right to live as each other, that they wouldn't prioritize human life over animal life. Um, more from like an evolutionary perspective, right? And kind of like disregarding the concept of a human soul. Okay, I, I disagree, but that's cool. We can live and let live. So I said to this kid, I'm curious why you're not vegetarian. Why is it okay for you to eat an animal? And my kid said, I really shouldn't be. I really shouldn't be eating animals, but I really like them. <laughs> I mean, the taste of them. <laughs> so I said, I truly congratulate your intellectual honesty. Most people wouldn't really get that honest, right? I shouldn't eat animals because I don't believe that I have a right to eat an animal because I don't believe that I have any moral supremacy over an animal. Yet I act in a way that is counter to my beliefs because I desire meat. And I think a lot of us are living on this plane. In fact, all of us to some degree are living on this plane, right? Like I've mentioned this before. I was wearing a dress the other day and my daughter was complimenting me. She said to me, where did you get it? So I said, I got it from, and I mentioned a website. Now this website is kind of known, this company, for not treating their workers very well. And I, and, and my, my daughter said to me, she's like, ooh, you shouldn't tell anybody that that's where you got it from because <laughs> that company has doesn't have a very good moral reputation. I said, I know. I said, and I, I wish I could tell you that I was so morally consistent that I didn't patronize any business that didn't engage in fair trade, but I'm not, I'm not that consistent. I'm just not, you know? And if I were, there were a lot of companies that I shop at that I wouldn't shop at. And to some degree, all of us are deciding where we're willing to draw the line. I will patronize this company, even though I'm not so sure I'm, I haven't researched probably all the companies that I patronize to see if I agree with how they're treating their workers, how they're paying their workers, what are their compensation packages. So all of us, to some degree, are ignoring certain truths 
and values that we believe in because we just want to engage or indulge in those things or in those foods or in those products or in those services, right? I think everybody who goes to Disney must know that the CEO of Disney makes a gazillion times more money than the staff person who's sitting there running the concession, right? And would not agree that that was a morally appropriate way to run a business, yet many of us would go to Disney and patronize that company anyway. And we're not just, I'm not just calling out Disney for Disney. I think most companies run like this. So to some degree, we're all willing to suspend our moral high ground for something that we simply want to indulge in and something that we simply enjoy. Okay. So um, yes, Tammy, I see your question and I am getting there. The fool, okay. So the fool knows moral wisdom, but ignores it in favor of gratifying his cravings. So I think to some degree, we all engage in foolish behavior because we want to do what we want to do. And I think it's important to just be honest about that, right? To say in a perfect world, I would not be patronizing this business, but I really just like their clothing. Okay. And, and, and that's okay to a certain degree, everybody's going to decide for themselves, or there's obviously the Torah guidance to help us decide at what point do we draw the line? Okay. He has no delight in or wish for understanding. So this is the person who says, I don't really want to think about it that hard. I don't really want to know truth. I want to just do what I want to do. do. Wanting, wanting, wanting only the images of desire that disclose themselves in their heart. Okay. So, so the question is, how do you deal differently to whether the purpose is to understand or to justify their own beliefs? Okay. So I think that when a person asks you a question, like, why do you do this? Or why does Judaism believe in this? Or why do you guys practice your behavior this way or that way? And it could be something related to Judaism, or it could just be anything. It could just be why your family does things a certain way or why you you know, spend your money in this way or that way or vacation to this or that place or spend the holidays here or there, whatever the case may be. And I think it's important when the question is asked to know, does this person want information or knowledge? Are they asking because they want to know and understand? Or are they asking because it's an elaborate ruse to to simply justify their own previously held beliefs? And the reason it's important to know is because in the former case, you can and should have a conversation where you have a rational and respectful exchange of ideas. And then obviously the person can decide whether they want to, you know, consider your beliefs and think about them or just go back to their previously held beliefs or perhaps something in the middle. In the second case where the person is simply goading you or baiting you because they're only trying to justify their own behaviors, the truth of the matter is that that person is not really listening to you. They're kind of using you as a foil to project their own beliefs. And it doesn't pay to engage in any sort of prolonged conversation or debate with a person in that category because you will find yourself frustrated because they're not asking in order to know. They're asking in order to argue. And that's why it's important to know. And if you're not sure, you can actually just ask them, you know, oh, are, are you, I, I mean, I would love to answer your question. Are you, are you genuinely curious and understanding, you know, what I want to do? And then they might say yes, or they might say no, or you might be able to read between the lines and see what it is. Where is it that they're really coming from? But sometimes we make the mistake of entering into these debates where there was never a desire for listening or knowledge or mutual understanding. And that becomes very frustrating very quickly. Okay. Thoughts, comments, questions on number two. Lisa. Um, yeah, so it's really basically, it's just the difference between intellectual versus emotional, I guess, right? Like one is the mm -hmm. fool is basing it on emotions and just taiva and uh, desires, whereas the cynic, you know, might just really want to have answers and have, you know, it's just the intellect versus emotion, I guess. Is yeah, I think I'm that's a great demarcation. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Wait, Rahi, did you um, answer Tammy's question? I think I did. 
Oh, okay. I didn't know what the question was. Sorry. Oh, oh Tammy's question was, please elaborate on how you respond differently, depending on whether their purpose is to understand or to justify their own behavior or confirm their own beliefs. Ah, uh, okay. Thank you. Sure. Um, so I brought up this book before in class, um, Adam Grant's Think Again, where he he makes the case for um, being more open-minded and he presents it as like thinking more like a scientist. I think mm -hmm. most conversations we have, we are setting about trying to <laughs> confirm what we already believe as opposed to a scientific method in which we attempt to falsify our hypotheses um, and look for things that might actually contradict it and, and show us that we've got the wrong theory or whatever. Mm -hmm. That book is amazing. I loved it. I found so many insights in that book that relate to Musser. Yeah. Um. And particularly what you're saying about looking at the world as a scientist, as opposed to, he has a few different, um, yeah. as opposed to a preacher, a politician, prosecutor, 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 right. So all of those people, a preacher, a, polit a politician, a prosecutor, they tr they're trying to convince you of something. Whereas a scientist is simply trying to study the evidence. So if their theory is proven wrong, they're just, as, they should be just as happy as if their theory is proven right, because the goal is to get to the truth. So that is such a great book. I highly recommend it to literally anybody. Um, and once we're talking about books, I have to tell you that I just started a book called Good to Great. Um, I would, when I was in Chicago uh, two weeks ago, I spoke in the morning for this organization called Soul Purpose. Um, and the there was a rabbi there who was also speaking. His name is Rabbi Joey Haber. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. He's incredible. He's a Sephardic rabbi from New York and just super passionate and interesting and motivating. And um, we're thinking of bringing him into JFX at some point. But anyway, um, so I got to listen to his talk because it came right before mine. And in it, he mentioned this book by Jim Collins called Good to Great. And he was talking about how good is the enemy of great, that the reason why most companies don't become great is because they're good enough and they kind of coast on the good enough. So I thought that was really interesting. But the book, very scientifically, and that's what reminded me of what you said, Tammy, very scientifically, like totally database studies 11 companies that outperformed the competition by at least three times, some of them seven times, some of them, one of them 17 times more uh, profit than the industry average over a period of at least 15 years. So sustained long lasting growth. And it studies these 11 companies to see what they have in common. To me, I, I mean, I just started the book, but to me, this is one of the most mind blowing findings. Every single one of the 11 companies had a CEO who was very humble and simple. Sure. These like larger than life, super charismatic, powerful CEOs, generally speaking, cared more about their own personal goals and advancement than about the goals and advancement and longevity of their company. And back to what you were saying, Tammy, it would be much more likely that the simple, humble CEO was observing to see what was right and what was wrong instead of trying to prop themselves up as the know-it-all who already knows what's right and what's wrong and then is looking for outside confirmation of what they already wanted to believe because it's about their charisma and standing and power in the company and in the world, as opposed to the long lasting sustained longevity of their company. So I thought that was just, I mean, I'm listening to the list of these CEOs in the beginning of the book. And I'm thinking to myself, why have I never heard of any of these people? <laughs> and the reason is because they always shun the limelight. These are not the CEOs who are on the Today Show and on the cover of Forbes. You know, they're just not, they're the humble, modest, you know, hardworking professionals who are just trying to be there for their company. So I thought that was super interesting. 
Um, Joey Haber has a podcast. What? You're blowing my mind right now, Dana. Okay. I'm going to have to it's check. Like, it's, it's amazing. I'm like binging them. It's unreal. Oh I need gosh. to that one. Okay, cool. Thank you. Okay. Thoughts, comments, questions before we move on. I'll mention something. Um, I was at a concert last night for Pete, uh, a Peter Gabriel concert. And he's been doing this since the 1970s. And very, very spiritual, successful, humanistic. The last song is about Stephen Biko, who was a, uh, a warrior and a fighter for uh, equal rights. And three different times he introduced his band members. You know how often he, those, what? he introduced his oh, band introduced. Uh -huh. three different times. He named them and went around. And you know, uh, the, the lead guy is always like the lead, you know, Bruce or whoever. And I'm not saying that these guys aren't amazing, but this was really about the band and the, the, the pulling together of the instruments. And he also mentioned there were about, I felt like I was at a museum. He, he mentioned every single visual artist who did the videos or the art or the whatever, and the behind the scenes guys came out. So wow. that was, I just felt like that is very in line with what you're saying. This big guy who's been doing this forever, who is getting smaller and smaller. And he mentioned that physically he's heavier. He doesn't have hair. He doesn't look like he used to look which is a rock star. He's a grandpa, you know? So he mentioned all these things and not in a, in a, not in a self-deprecating way, but just in a way that he's physically not who he was and he's more spiritual. Yeah. So I just thought that was very in line with Musser. That's so beautiful. Yeah. It was it's very so refreshing. Interesting. Yeah. You know, it's, it's refreshing to see leaders in the industry behave this way. Yeah. You know, because one can hope that there is some role modeling going on for the younger generation, that this this is actually what greatness looks like, stepping down and recognizing others, you know, instead of hogging the limelight for yourself. I just want to mention, agree, and I just want to mention one other thing. The very last part of the concert is this, is a song called Biko about Stephen Biko again. And he literally walks off the stage and says, the rest is up to you. And we're all singing the song and he just leaves. Like, <laughs> no, like fanfare and whatever. He's just gone. I just think this is such an interesting metaphor. So yeah. Thanks for letting me share. You know, I have to share with you that, um, the last momentum trip that I was on in Israel in, um, in July. So very often there's two parallel trips. So I was leading a trip of like 120 women. And my friend, Adrian gold was the educator on a parallel trip, which started one day later. So often we like get together on Friday night at the hotel, and there's, you know, there's a bit of overlap between the trips, but generally speaking, I'm leading my trip. She's leading her trip now on her trip. They piloted um, something that Momentum is considering where there's actually two co-leaders instead of one. And that there's one like Torah educator. And then the co-leader is somebody who is like a, a secular expert of some sort. So the person who co-led with her, her name is Debbie Gilboa. She's a doctor. Um, for those of you who follow Momentum, it's um, Ask Dr. G. That's her like social media account, Debbie Gilboa. Um, and she's very well known in her field. She's a parenting expert. She lectures on resilience. She's been on all these TV shows, you know, and she's she's super, you know, well-respected in her industry. And the two of them co-educated. So all of the educational content was divided up between the two of them. And it was it was a pilot. It was like, a, you know, an experiment to see like, what would the evaluations look like and how would it be? And so afterwards we were all debriefing me and Adrian and all the other trip leaders, you know, and Adrian said, um, I have to tell you, I, I so, I so loved working with Debbie. Um, she's incredible. It was amazing. And, you know, she also confessed that it was hard for her to share the stage. Hmm. And I thought that was so beautifully humble of her to say, you know, but basically her stage time was cut in half because she was sharing it with her co-educator. Mm -hmm. And she said it was a very humble experience for me, which is very good. She's like, that's a very good thing. She goes, I'm not going to say it's not hard. It is hard. And it's also good. 
you know, and I thought that was so beautiful. That was such a beautiful expression, you know, because the educator is sort of like a rock star on the trip. You're on the stage every day, you've got the microphone and everybody is clapping for you, you know, and, and I said to Adrian, like, if momentum does decide to roll this out on all the trips, I said, I would also find it hard to share the stage. I would, you know, I, I love doing what I do and, and, and there's a buildup with all the classes and I would have to sort of rework my classes and figure out how to do that. Um, but also being humble, not, but also, and also being humble and, and also, you know, the, the two co-leaders who are very different. One of them is Orthodox and one of them is not Orthodox. And one of them is a Torah expert. And one of them is a secular expert. And the two of them working together, that's such a beautiful role modeling of Jewish unity and of friendship and connection that cross the lines of our communities, you know, which that, that um, educational message is arguably much more powerful than one Torah educator dominating the stage, so to speak. So, yeah, very, very interesting. Okay, any other thoughts or comments before we move on? So we got, we got a little bonus topic here, which was humility. <laughs> okay, let's do verse three. When a wicked man comes, there comes also contempt. And with ignominy, ignominy, which is like shame, disgrace. Okay, so a wicked person comes along with contempt and shame comes along with disgrace. Okay, so what does this mean? Let's go to the commentary. The righteous behave with respect towards all men means this is actually exactly what we were just saying it means that you treat the little guy with respect you know uh sherry you were mentioning how he called everybody out all the band the crew members the band members one of the things that i've always seen my husband do at shabbatones and at events is he'll ask the servers their names and he'll thank them by name so that everybody can recognize them you know these are usually people that are not paid very highly and very often they're almost treated like they're invisible. I mean, we'll say thank you if they clear our plate, but people, you know, just talk around them as though they're not there and they're almost like a part of the furniture. And so at every Shabbaton, at every, you know, uh, Hanukkah party or whatever we have, my husband will say, you know, everybody, please, I just want to say thank you to Jim and Tammy and, you know, blah, blah, blah and all the servers and people will stand up and clap for them. And, you know, very often you can look at the look on their faces and see that they've perhaps never been recognized in that way. So, um, you know, recently on one of my momentum trips, I decided to do this. It's, it's not always possible um, at Shabbat dinner in Israel because it's, there's so many people on these trips in the room and the acoustics are sometimes really bad and we're not using a microphone on Friday night. So sometimes it's really hard to do, but I try to ask the servers their names and to do the same thing and to recognize them by name. And the last time I did it, um, some of the other staff people who were in the room said, wow, that is so beautiful. I've never seen anybody do that before. And they've started to implement it as a standard on the momentum trips that at Shabbat dinner, the servers get acknowledged by name. So this is what a righteous person does is they understand that every human being is worthy of respect and should be recognized no matter how you know little, so to speak, they are. My husband actually talked about this in his sermon on Rosh Hashanah about recognizing the workers and the garbage collectors and, you know, all the like little people, so to speak. When he, when we were here in Shul on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we got extra cleaning staff because, you know, the bathrooms get a lot of use over Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So we have extra janitorial staff to keep the place nice and clean. And because of what my husband had said, I, I turned to the woman who was cleaning the bathroom and I said, hi, what's your name? And she said, my name is Casey. I said, Casey, thank you so much for keeping the synagogue clean so that all of us can enjoy the holiday. And she looked so happy. And then the next day when I saw her again, I said, good morning, Casey. And she looked so surprised like that. I had remembered her name, you know, and it's just, it's such a powerful thing. And it goes both ways, by the way, I was getting my nails done once and I had a new, um, a new nail tech. And the next time I went to her, she said, oh, I remember you. Your name is Ruchi. I said, how on earth do you remember my name? She goes, I remember your smile. And I felt so good 
I felt so good that she remembered my name. It, it doesn't matter who you are. You appreciate being recognized and remembered and respected, right? So this is the righteous behave with respect towards all men. The wicked have the habit of contempt for all, even for those deserving of respect. So people who do not have well-developed morals, sometimes the way they make themselves feel important is by treating each other's, treating others disrespectfully. And that's how they sort of assert their own feelings of superiority. And certainly they behave insultingly to the less respectable of their friends in whom they find ignominy or a lack of worth. So this means that even people who deserve respect, a person you know who is unsavory is going to find a reason to act towards those people with disrespect or certainly to speak about them behind their backs with disrespect. So all of these, it's like this domino effect. If you go back to the verse, back to the verse, when a wicked man comes, there comes also contempt and with shame, disgrace. So it's like, it's this domino effect. Why? It starts with not seeing the respectability of every human being. And why should we have respect, respectability for every human being? Why are other human beings worthy of respect? Don't they have to earn our respect? No. Judaism says no. The default setting, the stage one is that every single human being is deserving of respect. Why? For one reason and one reason only, and that is because they were created in the image of God. Just for that reason alone, default mode is that person is deserving of respect. Now, obviously, people can lose that respect, right? If they behave in bad ways or in negative ways or they repeatedly do things to harm you or hurt you, or right, they've demonstrated that they're not respectable people, fine. Then you can lose respect for people. But at the first, you know, at the outset, we start out, every person is deserving of respect, meaning it's an opt out, not an opt in. We start out understanding that every person is deserving of respect. They might lose it. That's based on their own free will. But our attitude should be like innocent until proven guilty, respectable unless proven otherwise. And they don't have to earn it or deserve it. Just the fact that they are created in the image of God means that they have a divine godly soul and that they have something to offer the world. And that is what we should assume about all people, unless there is some compelling reason to discover or decide otherwise. Um. And this is why you'll see very often that um, a person, a great, great person is far more likely to not be so obsessed with their greatness, but rather to be incredibly respectful of the little people. P again, people who are not very well paid or young kids or people who are not very educated, the greater the person, the more likely it is that they will treat those people with respect. And when you see people who hold themselves, this is really back to what we were saying about the humble CEOs. When you see a person who holds themselves to be too high and mighty to look at the little person, that per what that person is really demonstrating about themselves is they're not really that great and that they're probably, they're, they're really like a smaller person. I have to read you guys something that one of my friends sent me. So one of the rabbis from when I was a kid, he probably passed away when I was in like sixth grade. His name was Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. He lived in New York. He was a very influential rabbi. And he was known for this. He was famous for this. Like wherever he went, when he was sick in the hospital or he used to go to this hotel in Florida and he knew like, he knew the, you know, every nurse by name and the the hotel checkout, uh, you know, counter, you know, clerk person by name. And he made everybody feel so important. So this is a story about his son. One Yom Kippur night, Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky came into, um, came into yeshiva. This is where they were like their synagogue before Kol Nidre wearing a red tie. Now, I guess this was considered like very kind of brash and loud. First of all, a lot of people wear white on Yom Kippur, but for sure, like more muted colors, like I guess a red tie at that time was considered very flashy. A red tie. Now he was this like older, like kind of sage, you know, kind of rabbi. Like it was very un, uh, a very unexpected for him to be wearing this like loud red tie. 
um, it was baffling until after Yom Kippur, when a ninth grader, so one of the young boys, related a question that he had posed to the rabbi on Erev Yom Kippur. He had asked the rabbi if it was proper to wear a red tie on Yom Kippur, since that was the only tie he had. Rabbi Shmuel assured him that it was and wondered why he was asking. My friends were teasing me, he said, and telling me that it's not appropriate. Rabbi Shmuel wished him well, and then the rabbi, using not a single word, found a way to make the young man feel so big on the holiest of nights. So he saw the boy only had a red tie. He told him, absolutely, it's appropriate to wear a red tie. And then he proceeded to wear a red tie himself, the entire Yom Kippur, to make sure that this young boy did not feel small or unimportant. I mean, this is greatness. Beautiful story, right? Yes. Beautiful. Okay. So we will stop here. Any final thoughts or comments? Can I bring something up that's a little bit controversial? Absolutely. Thanks. So, you know, this is something that is just one of my things um, is everybody made in the image of God. And what about Palestinians? Not Palestinians who want to blow us up because that's what most people say. So what about Palestinians who don't want to blow us up and want to live in peace? And there are some, many, you know, that I, I just really struggle with this. Which ask, what exactly are you asking? They too are made in the image of God, but in many ways we don't include them as full people similar to other cultures that didn't include racially what they would consider racially inferior people in their country. Yeah. So that, that it's that. a very important question. Um, and obviously a very big conversation, bigger right. than time. Why I had to now. To bring but it I up will, yeah. But I will, I will say this in response to your <laughs> yeah. question. Um, to my view, the IDF goes to great lengths to actually preserve the life and the dignity of our enemies. Um, and I, I've seen many, many examples. By the same token, the IDF is a human invention, and I do not claim to give them a stamp of perfection. Right. Not at all. You know, I'm not going to say that the IDF is always guided by the lens of Torah. It's not. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. And there's also a very messy and imperfect dynamic, to say the least, going on in the Middle East where there are groups of people who would like to see us gone. And the job of the IDF is to keep Israel safe. And in so doing, they do sometimes take the innocent with the guilty because they don't always know who's innocent and who's guilty. So for example, the checkpoints, which many have cited as human rights violations, it's true that there are some people coming to the checkpoints who are perfectly innocent and have no desire to kill us, who are being treated not with the you know dignity or respect because they are being perceived as potential criminals because they might be a potential criminal because right. perhaps many people from their um, village or country or ethnicity or religion or whatever are criminals. So the IDF, could the IDF do better? Probably, I'm, I'm not one to say that they're perfect. But there is a very real need to protect the the citizens. And in so doing, sometimes you do take the innocent with the guilty. Um, the other thing that I have to say about the Palestinians is that, you know, when one Jew behaves badly, right? Like when, when Dr. Baruch Goldstein, however many years ago, 20 odd years ago, blew up a bunch of Arabs as an act of terrorism, Every single Jewish leader got up and decried the horror. But when a Palestinian does something like that, I'm not seeing that kind of outcry from the ones who don't want to see us dead. Mm. So it's very troubling to really, I believe in my head that there are plenty of Palestinians who don't want to see us dead. I wonder why I never hear from them. Where are they? Where's the leadership? Where's the moderate voice? I, I want to see more of it. So again, this is very complex. We don't have so much time, but those are just a few thoughts that I had. Yeah. Thank you.
We can talk more offline, Sherry. Oh, I know we can't. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, All right, ladies. Yeah, and what Tammy just said is so true. And among Jews, there's been definitely bias. The, the Sephardi community in Israel and the Ethiopians, I mean, I don't like to talk about these things because it's uncomfortable and unpleasant. Right. Very often, they're not treated with full human dignity. They are discriminated against. I mean, one time when I was there on a momentum trip, there were protests and protests and protests by the Ethiopians for their subpar treatment. And those are Jews. So these are very complicated human issues. You know, in this class, we talk about ideals and the closer we can get to those ideals, the better the world will be. But I think we all know that we are living in a very imperfect world. Unfortunately, we're not, we're not quite done growing yet. At the same time, uh, not just to end on a little bit better note, I, many of the Jews in this country helped the civil rights movement. So you know, there's good and right. Right. Jews have always been at the forefront of civil rights movements because somehow in our DNA is baked this sense of standing up for justice and standing up for the underdog, because we, that's a biblical, actually a biblical concept where the Torah says, you know, be kind to the stranger because you were a stranger in a strange land. And I think many Jews without even knowing that verse or having ever studied Torah feel that obligation viscerally. My when my husband used to do criminal defense, there were people who would ask him, "Are you Jewish?" And if he said, "Yeah," they were like, "Great, I'm hiring you." Oh, yeah. that's so funny because they couldn't tell by looking at him and that his name was Bradley Green that he was Jewish. <laughs> well, they weren't that, Jewish themselves, so maybe oh, okay. They, so they missed Meaning the memo. Like, <laughs> wait, no, but like what you said that like Jews have it in us to fight for the little people. So I think. Right. That was the message that was heard by other communities who would ask him, Absolutely. are you Jewish? The other thing I wanted to say about that rabbi with the tie that was so beautiful, and I, I've shared this before, maybe in this class, I don't know. Sorry if it's a repeat for you. Um, but I remember when I first started wearing um, skirts and dresses and my friend Allison Goldstein said, you know, do you want to go for a walk? We'll walk up to Legacy Village and walk around. And I was like embarrassed, which now I'm like, I can't even believe I was embarrassed, but I was, I was embarrassed that people I would see would be like, oh, she really has gone the other way, <laughs> like <laughs> religiously. And so yeah. I told her that I had to find a skirt. I was feeling insecure, but like, for sure I'm coming over. And then when I showed up, she was wearing a skirt and I was like, oh, that was <laughs> oh so that's nice. sweet. I love that. So nice. So nice. So good Shabbos, everyone. All right. Yes. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. Yeah. Hug Samaya. Holiday, a wonderful exactly. Sukkot. For those of you who do not have a sukkah of your own, please make sure to visit somebody's sukkah this holiday and to have the opportunity to enjoy being in the sukkah. Um, and uh, have a wonderful holiday, everybody. And I will see you, God willing, in two weeks. Perfect. Have a great holiday. Good Thanks, Shabbos. Good Yantiv. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos.